Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Big week in sports, big week in business this week. It's the baseball all-star game. We'll cover that. It's also the only week where Monday and Wednesday, you don't count the Tuesday All-Stars legitimate competition, but there's no big four mainstream U.S. sporting team playing. But listen, there's more stuff that's happening in the boardroom than ever before. And to dissect and analyze the worldwide digital guru, Amy Tenery. How's that? Is that a better intro? Worldwide? I like it. I like it. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing really well. I'm, I'm really excited because there's a little bit of pride. 400,000 years ago, I was involved in the effort to bring baseball to South Florida, and we put the sports authority together and got the stadium done, and everybody said it couldn't be done. Not only was it done in 93, but the Marlins uh, two championships in 97 and, and again in uh, 2003. Now 2012, we've got a new stadium that begets the All-Star weekend this weekend, and I'm biased because I live here. So what was your overall perspective of, of the weekend? I think it's it's been terrific. I mean, obviously, it, they've sold, you know, I think it, it's something like more than 100,000 passes combined. Uh, lots of uh, internet buzz, lots of social media buzz around the home run derby. I think it's been a great event so far. And especially having an indoor stadium when you're holding the thing in July certainly can't hurt. Well, I don't know if it was a story, but it was a major thunderstorm, typical South Florida during the home run derby. Although inside, Aaron Judge lit, lit it up even more than, than the weather. And then yesterday, the, the, the uh, humidity was 98% legit, legitimately, and 94 degrees in the index was like over 120, but it felt hotter. So, you know, that's Whoa. why you got a air conditioning. That's why you have a stadium. About 102, yeah. 103 million dollars of economic impact for, for South Florida. Baseball, incredibly healthy. 170 countries, 13 languages for the All-Star Game itself. Average franchise, as we've covered, 1.5 billion, 19% increase over the year before. And the big stat, which I find really interesting, is Forbes pegged 23 teams of the 30 worth over a billion dollars this last cycle versus five just two years ago. So baseball, very healthy. Television revenue, very healthy. Aaron Judge, the face of baseball as well. And how about the team that hosts the game, the Marlins? They're looking to try to sell, and what are you hearing? Oh, yes. Well, this is just the latest chapter. You know, I think in the past we talked about this deal. The team was valued at around $900 million, but owners were looking to sell for something like $1.7 billion, which was just, to me, absolutely obscene. Now it looks like they're starting to get more in the ballpark of $1.3 billion. The New York Post, I think, reported today that Jeter's group was close to getting $1.2 deal going. Another group, possibly most... Um, interesting is that Pitbull is joining forces with Jeb Bush, which is never a sentence I thought I would say out loud, but here we are. So he's adding a little bit of celebrity clout to Jeb Bush's uh, deal, unless you're somebody who thinks of Jeb Bush as a celebrity. So, you know, I'm interested to hear your take on this. Do you think having a local celebrity like Pitbull, he's obviously beloved by the city, he's a, you know, a, a hugely successful performing artist. Is this actually going to make a difference, or is this just, uh, you know, 
a little all sparkle and no substance. I know a couple of things. One is that after talking to David Sampson, the president of the of the team, and we'll we'll have that for you guys as we post this on our site. He's talking about how he's been very happy with what he's done, although he could have done better. It sounds like a guy that's ready to move on, but they'll get their fair price and they'll also play it to the last minute. And then with South Florida being celebrity town and people wanting to bring it to local roots, uh, they, citizens here have nothing to say about the sale. It's all about who owns it. But yet sure. there will be some pressure, and there probably will be a deal pretty quickly. And the one thing we know is the tremendous economic impact for this community, for baseball, and everybody's kind of really excited about it. And the interesting dynamic geograph- geographically is you go to the other end of the country, and we have a, an underreported story, but I think it's a big deal. L.A. effectively was guaranteed an Olympics in the next uh, nine-year cycle as the IOC changed its charter technically by allowing uh, uh, two, t- two uh, cities, two venues, two bids can- to be selected at the same process. And Paris and L.A. were the last two standing for 2024 or 2028. To me, it doesn't matter which one it is. You know, four more years means more planning. Uh, people will want to get it early. It's immediate gratification, but it doesn't matter. We've had a lot of strikeouts. It looks like L.A. has finally hit gold again for the next decade. Yeah, and I love this, not only because I'll be at least somewhat close to this time zone where they'll be hosting the events, but I love this because this is a city that's not going to have to build all of their, their stadiums and venues from scratch, like we saw with Rio, where they had to build everything from the ground up, and the city was left with a tremendous amount of debt in the process. Here in Los Angeles, you've got the Coliseum, the Rams are building their new $2.6 billion stadium in Ingle, would obviously USC, UCLA could potentially be uh, you know venues that could host some athletic events. So I'm I'm hoping and and maybe you can sort of shed some light on this that in this particular case we'll see a city that doesn't have the same economic bite taken out of it as a result of the Olympics as we've seen so so many times before. Hey, it's a big risk. What the IOC is doing with LA certainly and a lesser extent Paris is taking the safer route. If you don't build a lot of facilities just for the games, then you don't have a negative legacy after the games leave, and you might have some upside. The dorms at a, a, a Olympics usually get turned into housing. You have a new transportation system. You have new venues, but Rio and Athens uh, struck out on all that. So did Beijing. Um, uh, Sydney did a good job. London did a good job. We think that uh, Paris and L.A. will look more like the good ones and the bad ones. On the other hand, if you want to do a legacy, an Olympics is one of the things that can kickstart people into doing something. But as you said, didn't work in Rio. And in this Mm -mm. day and age, with real significant debt, you probably want to take the easy way out. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, how about we go across the pond now? Yeah, good segue, across the pond. Um, I am excited because I lose more tennis matches than I win on a weekly basis. And now... I have a lot of company at the highest levels as the storyline at Wimbledon is, at least on the men's side, most of the top four guys are out. Djokovic by injury, Murray by beating, beaten by an American, Sam Query, which is interesting. Um, and so, and Nadal beaten by an unseated guy in a 15-13 best of five, fifth set, uh, uh, amazing drama, middle of the week. Uh, it doesn't matter. People will hear this uh, whatever whenever they hear it, and they'll know what the results are, but Economically, the deal is a lot of backlash against these players who are uh, getting injured and walking away. 
Guys like Federer, who really respect the game, ironically, he's there till the end. He's looking for his 18th Grand Slam. Mm -hmm. But it's a time maybe to pass the torch from the old guard to the new guard. What's your take on Wimbledon? Well, I think there's just there's a tremendous amount of pressure to show up, and especially for these Grand Slam events. This is when they get their face time, and, and they hope that they can stick around for long enough that they're on enough people's TV sets and and maybe that helps with their endorsement deals. I just think as with every sport, and I think maybe we see this more with football, I think it's tremendously unfortunate that you so often see these athletes feel like they need to play through injury just to remain relevant. That is especially the case with with tennis when you kind of on your own, you don't have a team to to carry the torch for you when you need to tend to, you know, an injured limb or, or whatnot. But, it, you know, for all the backlash, it, this has been a really exciting Wimbledon. I think that's great for the tournament itself. I think Nadal was out in pretty epic fashion. I think the Murray game was a huge stunner. And and as you, you mentioned, Query is, you know, possibly an, an American revival story. We have Venus uh, performing quite well. So, you know, my hope as a as a fan is that the injuries don't overshadow the entire tournament. But well, and and you know, good point. If you look at Venus Williams, thirty seven years old, doesn't seem to deter her. Uh, Serena probably after she has her child coming back. There's a way that athletes who really revere their bodies and know how to take care of them really survive and thrive at the top. Which is an interesting segue. Our interview today is a little different in the sense that it's not a household name, but that's what the show is all about as well, to discover some. This guy was president for North America of a company called Catapult, which is the Idea Innovator of the Year by Sports Business Journal in 2013. And it is medical measurement scientific devices that can actually be put on uniforms to measure health, injury prevention, stress, it's a really kind of interesting product. The Red Sox have adopted it. A lot of other teams in baseball have adopted it, and he's expanding beyond that. And in this day and age of people getting injured, not only the weekend warrior, but the player making $10, $12 million a year, it's important to have the best devices close at hand. Brian Kopp, president of Catapult North America, is such an executive. Let's hear from him now. Talk to us a little bit about Catapult, where it's been, where it's going. Sure. So Catapult is an Australian-based company, and what we do is wearable analytics for elite and sub-elite and eventually just about every athlete. So what we do is we have a wearable device that we create, but it's really about data we can capture off athletes while you're playing the sports. So there's a lot you can do in a lab, but what we do is we have wearable device you wear while you're actually out there playing the sport, and it's around monitoring what you do, increasing your performance, trying to mitigate risk of, of injury, and when you are injured, get you back on the field. So this is one of those devices that can't be very intrusive or people right. wouldn't be wearing them. Correct. So tell us tell us about it. Sure, so it's a device that you wear in a compression shirt. There's an Let's example, I'll give it to you. So not very big. Um, you wear it on your back between your shoulder blades, and what it captures is all the micro movements of your body. So it knows when you're, you're running speed and distance, it knows when you change direction, it knows when you're jumping, and it collects all this data on that device or it can stream it live onto a software. So you know in practice what you're doing, in games where it's allowed what you're doing, and with this one device we can measure a lot about what the athlete's doing when they're actually out there playing the sport. How many competitors are in the space with you? Is this, is this it? 
No, we're, we're by far the market leader. We yeah. have 1,200 clients around the world. I think the next closest competitor has you know 200. So we've been doing this for a decade in right. Australia, out of Australia. Uh, here in the U.S., it's really grown in the last couple of years. So there are a lot of emerging companies trying to put sensors on athletes, but to us, it's not about the hardware. The right. hardware is an enabler to getting the data. So we spend a lot of time on analyzing that data. That's why we're here at this conference, you know, trying to talk to people that can help us take it to the next level. Uh, so it's really, this, this data allows us to get the data we need, this device does, but it's really about what you do with it and make it as specific to the, the Well, let's athlete. talk about both of those, though. What is the biggest market disruptor point of uniqueness down the road for you? Is it the flexibility of the device itself or the diverse application of the data that you receive? You know, we always thought it was going to be about the device becoming commoditized. Uh, we think that's less likely just because there's only so far you can go with the devices. We really think it's going to be about the data, making it sports specific. So we do a lot of work on turning our analytics into something that's specific to a sport like basketball, football, hockey. A new sport we're going to work in is baseball. We're, uh, Major League Baseball is allowing these devices to be worn in games this year. So being able to get that type of data in games for a sport like baseball is brand new. So it's going to be about analytics, but it's also going to be about connecting the dots with other parts of what you do. So we last year acquired Exos, which is a video platform yeah. company. So taking the data we have, connecting it with video. So you know not just how hard were you working, but what were you doing? Let's go look at the video of that, that instance as well. So Brian, tell me what you think is going to be the easiest path for universal adoption at the sport level. Are the teams going to mandate their players wearing it because they see it as a competitive advantage? Are the leagues going to say you ought to wear it? Are the insurance providers, who's going to push it to the next level? Yeah, it's it's a good question. We, we're we talking to all of the, the leagues at various stages about you know how it benefits their athletes. We're obviously working a lot with the teams. I think the players have to be part of the conversation. Uh, you know, you're putting this device on a player. So yeah. the players, the players union, getting them comfortable with the device, showing them that it's a value to them, showing them that it helps them to extend their career. It helps them get that back on the field and ultimately sign a next big contract if you're a professional player. But even down to the youth level, we're starting to work with high school athletes to say, hey, it's not just about increasing your performance, but how hard are you working? Let's not overwork high school kids that are trying to make it to the next level or, or what they're doing throughout the chain. So I think there's going to be a lot of people involved in the conversation, as there should be. Uh, we haven't quite gotten to the insurance companies, but I'm sure that'll come at some point down the line. Of course it will. And uh, are there any leagues that are less malleable than others, let's say? Um, they all they all are their different uh, yeah. stages of this. Right. Uh, in college, we're allowed in games, which is great, because then we can we can look at game and practice data. In most professional leagues, we're not yet, but that's a conversation we're having with both the leagues and the players' union to answer questions, because they should ask questions. It's, right. a, it's a new information. You don't want it to be used the wrong way. You want the athletes to be comfortable with it. The teams get value. The leagues be comfortable. So, like I said, Major League Baseball is allowing it in games. Uh, some of the other leagues are not quite there yet, but we're in those discussions. And without getting inside baseball, so to speak, what's the prototypical business deal that you would put forth with a team or, or a sure. league or an individual? So we have a subscription model. So what we provide is not only a hardware, but also a software and a service. So they pay us a subscription license, an annual license, which typically gives them access to not only the hardware, but our software and our support resources, because we have a number of analytics sports scientists on staff that provide support. So it is a software model that we provide to people. 
are we going to transcend into the consumer market in the not too distant future like a Fitbit or is there a line that you're drawing? No, I mean we think that it goes applies this type of device applies all the way down the chain. So not just professional college, high school, but eventually what we call prosumer, people that are still part of teams that are serious about sport, may not be you doing it at a co collegiate or a professional level, but are still serious about sport because what we allow you to do is maximize what your output is and keep you from doing too much. Right. So that applies even for me when I'm trying to play in my, yeah. you know, my old man's basketball league, it still applies to to making sure you don't push yourself too hard. That's a greater segue to an even older man. So what about lazy people who <laughs> just want to make it look like they know what they're doing, right? There you go. We can, uh, I'm sure we can come up with something. <laughs> yeah, this. yeah, exactly. The remedial version, ladies and gentlemen. So let's talk about the business side of this, the business show, after yeah. all. Um, so perfected in Australia, mm -hmm. then how do you make the decision to launch in an entirely different continent? Do you patent first? Do you do proof of concept with teams or leagues first? What, how do you enter another market? Yeah, it, it, it came naturally because teams started hiring Australian sports scientists. And they said, hey, we got this device down in Australia you should use. So it, it happened gradually through that. Um, certainly we applied and, and did all the patents, made sure we had all the protections, and then we started building the team. So I joined about three years ago, and in that time we've built out a team to better service this market. Uh, but it really started with the teams themselves seeing a need for this type of coverage and information, and now we're making it more specific to sports here in the U.S. like football and, ba and baseball. The founders had a vision and an epiphany, and it worked in Australia. Was there a similar magic moment to say, let's take it to the States? A lot of it started with uh, Florida State football. The year they won the national championship, they were very vocal Helps. with the fact that Catapult, not just this technology that we're hitting, they mentioned Catapult by name. Jimbo Fisher gave us a lot of credit for how they were able to keep their players healthy and on the field. And that was back in, uh, you know, a few years ago. And it kind of took off from there because once they once that got out, everyone's like, "What is this uh, this Australian mystery technology that's helping everybody out?" Are you guys past the point of the normal angel investor scrambling for money process? Yeah, uh, I mean, we are uh, we're actually a publicly traded company in Australia. Yeah. Uh, still pretty small, but growing. We uh, are now profitable with our acquisition we made last year. Uh, but we're, we're growing very well and it helps to have a great story to bring back to the Australian investors about what we're doing in, in the U.S. and Europe and other markets. Uh, but yeah, luckily we've, we've gone past the point of where a lot of technologies are. If we've crossed that chasm of getting enough adoption that we have a stable foundation we can build on. Well, that's a really interesting uh, perception because the noise out there is everybody's perfect idea. <laughs> and the smaller sound, the crickets you hear, the perfect yeah. idea is going to market. Yeah, well, so. it's uh, what we hope that we've built over time with the clients we have, the credibility we have, is a platform that we're, we're always looking around to see what those ideas are. Because if we see a good idea, we can enable it on our platform. And rather than these companies out here starting from scratch, you now have a universe of 1,200 clients, diversity around the world that you can leverage off of the Catapult platform. Are we moving toward an era in your world with one device fits all? Do we have some common thing that can tell time and do everything else, or is that just not something that's No, I mean, um, you hear people say that there'll be multiple devices all over a player or an athlete. I, yeah. I think that's hard. I mean, people don't, they don't, they don't want to wear sure. many things. Um, I think um, our device is worn with a compression shirt. 
one of the things we're looking at right now is how the smart garment industry is, is evolving. So can we integrate what we collect, which is what your body moves, with what garments collect in terms of your heart rate, your breathing rate, and how your, your body responds to that movement. If you have those two pieces together, yeah. you have everything you need. So an entrepreneur who is a classic entrepreneur for a couple reasons, you've got a product that proven, but not here, and mm -hmm. then you take it here, What's, what does somebody in your position worry about when he gets up in the morning? <laughs> uh, many things. Yeah. Uh, Bus Business-wise, <laughs> yeah, in, we don't have uh, enough time for the other. Worried about my, uh, what my five kids are up to, but um, yeah, right. the, I think that the, the biggest challenge we have is there's so many opportunities that we got to prioritize them. Yeah. We don't want to go after too many things Good point. that uh, we delude ourselves. Um, there's also an element of what is, what else is out there, what's yeah. around the corner that could be disruptive, and luckily we've got to the point where it'd be very difficult to disrupt our position, but that's where we want to look out to make sure if there are, there are disruptions, let's be in front of it, and let's right. make that, let's, let's be a part of the disruption rather than making it happen to us. And I'm sure entrepreneurs have a collateral issue and concern about making sure you cover the market, stay ahead of your competitors, sure. and not get out there so quickly you're diluted or overexposed. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I guess that's one of those issues, along with your five kids, that, yes. that deals with <laughs> stuff. All right, where are you five years from now? Um, I think that we are everywhere. Um, I think that we're at every sport. I think we're in games and practice. I think that when you go to play pickup basketball, we're there. Uh, we want these devices to be on every athlete that's playing that is serious about sport. And if we accomplish that goal, it'll unlock so much information to help athletes, to drive into new areas, to eventually change the way that the sport is played, potentially change the rules of the sport to make it safer. Um, so there's a lot of ways that we can do, and I think you'll see that in the next five years. And just another sales question relative to the next five years. Yep. Volume sale, league down, advantage of that is you're sold in yep. all the time versus the kind of competitive advantage, I want to be the first and be out ahead of everybody. Yep. How do those two juxtapose in your world? Yeah, it's interesting because we're basically, we're, we're doing both a bottom-up and a top-down approach yeah. um, because the answer is whatever approach gets us in the door. So we're having league-wide discussions, not only in this country, but around the world where there's a media angle to it. You put a device on a player and you're putting stuff on TV. Um, you see that more in international markets than you do here yet, but that's a top-down approach that provides value, open, opens up new value, gives you that, that volume, but also we do the bottoms up because it's, in, it's important that each individual team understands and uses this data. The competitive advantage is interesting because this is a very personal device. What it measures from you is very different than what it measures from me. We can do the exact same drill and the outputs will be slightly different because our bodies are different. So it's a very personal device. So we still want to make sure that we're providing that bottoms up approach to helping the teams unlock value. But the top down is important too because the leagues are around the world and the rights holders are going to be a big part of this. So ladies and gentlemen, in a tempest of everybody's perfect ideas, this one stands out as far as ingenuity, commitment, and it's really in the market and it really works. Ron, thank you very much. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Ryan Cobb. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrow. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso. <laughs>